We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Every new building is made up of lots of products that someone chose throughout the design process. The details of these products need to be specified in such a way to meet the requirements set out in the relevant building code. These products include the floors that we walk on and their slip resistance, the walls that separate us and their fire rating, and the roof that protects us from the sun and rain and its thermal performance. Not only do these products need to perform well to protect us, but where they came from and the way that they were made also has a knock-on effect. Some items might have to travel halfway around the world before they get to a project, and others might have been sourced from an endangered rainforest. This is why choosing the right products for the right job can be one of the most time-consuming and detailed processes architects go through. I'm Daniel Moore, and in today's episode of Hearing Architecture, we're talking to Andrew Jeeves, Claire Kennedy and David Schultes about the importance of designing responsibly and how specifying even the simplest products can have a huge impact. Australia relies on a lot of tourism to keep our economy going, and the tourism facilities that support all of the tourists coming to visit our amazing landscapes and icons do a lot of heavy lifting. Andrew Jeeves is a project architect working in the Hobart office for Cumula Studio, which has quickly carved a name for itself as one of Australia's premier firms for tourism facilities. Most recently, Andrew worked on the Parks and Wildlife Service Gateway Precinct, which is the arrival facility transitioning tourists into the World Heritage listed Cradle Mountain Valley. After developing the master plan concept for the area for the Tasmanian State Government, Cumulus were brought back to design the gateway as the first project in the scheme. All right. Thank you so much, Andrew, for joining us on the Hearing Architecture podcast. How are you going? I'm great. Thanks. I'm pleasure to be here. So you're one of the uh, amazing project architects down at Cumulus Studio based down in Tassie. And you were the project architect working on the Cradle Mountain project that was recently finished. So, so tell us a little bit about the building um, and how it operates as a gateway. The, the form of the building is related very strongly to the forms and geological processes of that valley. So there's the folded rock forms and the glaciation and the carving out of cliffs. And so the overall building form we've got this very strong geometric exterior and then this sort of carved out sculpted interior and both of those elements were reading from ideas about geology and and form in the landscape right one of the world heritage categories that a place can meet to be world heritage listed was cultural significance the cradle valley is extremely significant to the local indigenous community down there how was that integrated into the design yeah, the cultural heritage is really significant, and there's there's the the recent European, but there's also a long history of the the Aboriginal cultural heritage there. Now, we worked very closely in our interpretation throughout the project, and working with other consultants on this, so that elements to do with place and interpreting the site were integrated into the design of the landscape into the forms and even parts of the building so that you would start to experience these without just putting up a plaque and an info sign that says you are here and this happened here. So 
we worked really closely with the, the landscape architect on the forms and the landscape relating really close to that place. And then there's actually a dedicated area that was developed in consultation with the Aboriginal community. And there's a series of rock sculpture and then there's bronze castings of baskets and spears. And, and so there, there's further information for people to see and understand some of the cultural heritage there and dedicated place that that community can meet on the site as well. Yeah, and it, it sounds like balancing the really important cultural significance of this area must be difficult with with balancing the really practical things that need to happen in a tourist setting like this. I mean, if you're going to have large amounts of people coming in with buses and cars and all those sorts of things, how did you make all of those things work together? You're right there. It's one of the most visited tourist destinations in Tasmania. So there's periods of time especially for a place like this it gets peak visitation so we've got really large numbers of people coming through the site now the overall buildings that we did were part of a gateway precinct and so it involved a really large amount of road work and civil infrastructure as well and what we aimed to do was to not have all of that transport and infrastructure of the site dominate your experience so there was a very clear strategy about how you entered the site, very delicate and careful shaping of the landscape and retaining even into the landscape and the way that the sod was removed and then reused on the site um, because it's a really slow growing landscape. So as much as possible, we tried to make it that it wasn't just decimating everything and then taking years to recover. So the experience of the site is to try and make that approach as natural as possible but then the parking is further away from the buildings and so you do have to walk a little bit but by doing that you're actually then creating a journey through the landscape to the buildings and then departing from there into the World Heritage Area. I guess working with accessibility in terms of cars and a bit of a distance from where you park to get to the gateway building, how did that go with all of the universally accessible requirements that you needed to meet? Was that a challenge? Any project, you have a lot of development. And so when you have a clear vision of where you're trying to get from the outset, then it was just working through and negotiating all of those requirements. But what we've ended up with as well is some shelters that sit in the landscape so that there are points for people to rest and stop or have some weather protection and so it's not just a completely exposed journey we've actually built some sensitive little buildings into the landscape to to break down that journey as well. How do you feel about meeting all of those requirements and then also making it extremely special for Tassie? I mean, it's got to say something about the state and the location. What do you think about the building really stands out as like a Tasmanian building? It's really interesting because I think from the outset, we saw that we'd been entrusted with a great responsibility to deal with an iconic place that's special to most Tasmanians. And so having a building that relates closely to place is really important. And so, yeah, we've talked about some of the ideas to do with overall form and and those big picture ideas, but even things like then coming down to, say, specific materials and and how that relates to the place. And, and that all forms part of this picture and story of how it's connected. And one example would just be the main volume of the entrance that people come into is all lined in 
timber plywood, which might just seem like, oh, yep, yeah, you've, you've put plywood up. But actually, the process of finding that product, it's always that balance. We, you know, we have this responsibility to be on budget as well. And so there wasn't the amount of money to say we're putting a whole lot of amazing Tasmanian timbers in there. So then we're thinking, okay, it's gone to plywood. The only plywood available, we could put expensive veneers on the face as well, but we found a structural product um, and we spoke directly to the supplier and it wasn't intended as a class of product for a, a great interior, but we worked with them and we got select sheets from their B-grade plywood and specified the species that it was going to be and, and worked closely with them. Then in construction, the bushfires last summer, the mill burnt down and we were being told, oh, you might have to source product from interstate, but then they managed to produce sheets from a different mill, but they were a different size sheet, so we had to reset out the interior to a smaller size sheet. But we understood we had this commitment to having something that related closely to the place. And yeah, in the end, we have a product that's grown and manufactured in Tasmania. And that backstory, most people don't know, but it still, I think, helps that building be grounded in that place and have that stronger connection to the landscape. Yeah, so that's lovely. So the exterior looks a little bit like the geology of the location and the interior is lined and made with materials that are actually from Tasmania. Yeah, and the exterior, it looks quite dramatic and I think that it's got this layer of transparency, but that grew out of an idea to do with a pragmatic element of shelter and covered areas and not having the budget to build a really large building. So what I was getting at was that the building, it's an aluminium cladding, but it's related to the form, but it's not just an aesthetic idea. We have this responsibility of managing budgets and client needs. So we sort of juggled that interior, exterior space and then found an interesting way to interpret that. Yeah. Were there any people who, because of the World Heritage listing, is there any um, pushback from the community saying we really need all of this development on this site? Uh, I think one of the things for this site that helped it really was that the infrastructure that was there to date was very poor and no one really felt any strong connection to what the existing experience was. There were some changes to access as far as hours of the day that people can actually drive their car into the World Heritage Precinct and I think there was some resistance to that at first but actually from when they started implementing that, it, it seemed to work very smoothly. And now that we've got an experience, it's actually a really wonderful experience now of when people arrive. So I think some of those issues have really fallen by the wayside because you're actually dealing with something that's, I guess, a, a more positive experience now anyway. Yeah, and I guess a lot of people might find it a bit tricky to define an experience for so many people from different cultures and backgrounds coming to the site. What were the big takeaways that you wanted people to get when they visited the Gateway? I think a big takeaway is that it's a launching point into something that's really special. So the building's not trying to own the experience of the place, but it's trying to set an expectation that actually we're about to go somewhere that's really important and really special. And and so it's it's just to set the scene for an anticipation of this is going to be great. And I so I think the 
building uh, has achieved that in a way that you see something it's very different and it, it forms a strong impression straight away as to what you might be going to see. Absolutely. It seems like the building is extremely playful. Um, why did you choose to do a building that was non-traditional and why do you think that that was the right tack in this context? As a, as a practice of architects, we always have a strong responsibility to create buildings that meet the client's needs and address the budget and the place and, and, and be rigorous. So there's a series of responsibilities that we have that are very important to make sure that we've actually built infrastructure that works for what it's needed to be. But there's always an element of trying to find something that makes it enduring. And so trying to find something in, in all of these ingredients of, of the place and and the, and the pragmatics of the building, but what opportunities can we find that allow the building to speak more than just those pragmatic requirements? And so we tried to find within that program of the sheltered space and the interior volume, how we could push those elements as far as we could within the means of the project so that they really stood out as key elements. Yeah. Is it also about, I guess, finding a sense of delight and joy as you peel back the layers of the building? Absolutely. And it uh, tells you more of a story about the place. Yeah. And I think there's there's even little snippets where when you go to the bathrooms, there's a big long basin and the sculpted base of that basin is actually a contour model of part of Cradle Valley. So, <laughs> you, you wash your hands and the water flows down through this contour model of a landscape. So, there's little moments like that that do then help ground it to place, but also they're just moments of delight where you see kids, you know, washing their hands and, and looking at this landscape contour model and it um, just brings a bit of excitement into something that's actually mundane and washing your hands. That's right. It's a great use of a contour model that only sometimes only architects get to appreciate. <laughs> so yes. that's great. We're get getting to introduce other people to the to wonderful contour models. Well, thank you so much, Andrew, for being part of the Hearing Architecture podcast. It's been really fantastic to to hear about everything that goes into the amazing buildings that Cumulus puts together. Thank you so much for sharing with us, and we look forward to hearing from you in the future. Thanks very much, Daniel. It was a pleasure to be here. All of the energy that it takes to make a product and also bring it to its end location make up a product's embodied footprint. So products that are made locally have a really low embodied footprint, but products that have been made overseas with really intense manufacturing processes have a really high embodied energy footprint. Claire Kennedy is one of the founders of the architecture practice Five Mile Radius, which focuses on sourcing and specifying materials that are local to the projects that they're working on. By specifying local materials, they're able to reduce the embodied energy of their projects, but they're also able to connect the projects to the places where they're built. All right, Claire. Well, thank you so much for being part of the Hearing Architecture podcast. It's really wonderful to have you on board. How are you going? Going very well. Um, yeah, thank you very much for having us. We can get almost any material you want when you don't necessarily think about the radius of where it's come from. What's the importance of actually thinking locally when it comes to materials? I think it's sort of multi-pronged. Uh, yeah, firstly, the fact that you can get anything available, as a, especially as a young architect, is slightly overwhelming. So for us as a, you know, an emerging design practice, that was a very sort of grounding constraint. 
And then obviously, you know, there's a sustainability kind of aspect to it. You know, the simple idea of building something which is connected to a local economy and perhaps a, a, the continuation of a, of a cultural tradition, perhaps to, uh, to a local climate and perhaps to, you know, locally available materials to ensure that maintenance is kind of accessible is kind of a, a very grounded approach to specifying. And I think it's something that you see a lot of in food and in fashion. And I guess architecturally, we thought it was interesting to explore the same thing. So does that mean that you have to put in heaps of legwork just looking for these materials that exist? Or are you experimenting with new materials yourself? How, how far do you take it? Uh, we take a probably a more experimental approach, which is becoming a little less experimental as the practice kind of grows. But the approach really is per project or installation or whatever it is to really lock in on one thing. So, you know, we'll choose to isolate a certain recycled timber source and then the whole project really becomes about that. So then that allows us to really get into sort of research mode and also really allows us to connect with suppliers and understand supply chains. So, yeah, I think you're right. It would be very overwhelming to, you know, work in a really traditional architectural um, project and then be trying to find everything locally. You'd be surprised, actually, the more you look, the more you find. But, um, but yeah, for us, it's in our sort of early years, it's we've had the freedom to kind of just lock in on one thing and then really follow that through. It seems like Five Mile Radius is doing some incredible work and you're really putting your money where your mouth is. In the Project Earthwork, you're really using or you know, focusing on this local natural materials. Can you tell us more about that project? Sure. I mean, Earth was the foundational material for Five Mile Radius, uh, which was um, really based on observations about more rural architecture and uh, seeing amazingly meaningful buildings built just using simply the dirt that surrounds the site. So that was, uh, that's something that, you know, houses, you know, billions of people world, world, um, worldwide, but to us, it just seems so revolutionary from sort of a more traditional architectural upbringing in a, you know, Western country. And so we thought, let's try and share that message. So our, our initial few projects and actually subsequent projects have explored using local soils. So very quickly we learned how to make our own bricks, our own tiles, our own roof tiles, our own plasters, um, our own mud bricks, uh, rammed earth, you know, just this one material then can become, you know, 15 different things. And we started out by just exploring that through exhibitions and grants, which we were lucky to receive. And you know, through also research fellowships. So we traveled around America and made a document about building with earth in remote arid regions, which is available on our website. And really it just speaks to how the US uh, has managed to, you know, house so much of their southwest corner using earth or adobe. And so why can't we do a similar thing here? And what do you think that reason is? Do you think part of its perception or is yeah? Is it something else entirely? Is it, is it economics maybe in Australia? 
Mm, the perception thing is obviously a thing with Earth. Um, yeah, so we've done projects in India that look specifically at that. That is, I don't think that necessarily is such an issue here because we don't really have we don't really have a tradition of it. I mean, in the US, there's a sort of a large Mexican influence that really focused on sort of traditional adobe construction, which we we simply did not have to that extent. So certainly uh, the Indigenous community had methods of building with earth and then certainly um, when Australia was, you know, colonised, the English brought with them some earth-building sensibilities, but they never really took off and they were always seen as a bit of a poor man's method and as soon as sort of we learnt to burn bricks or use stone and had the means in Australia, we quickly did. So, yeah, earth never really took off in that sense, but now I think it's just there's a bit of a lack of uh, expertise really. Right. Okay. But have you and you uh, you've started to use these materials now in some of your projects in Australia, haven't you? The dirt temple and twin twin mud houses. Twin mud houses is an Indian project, and yeah, that was certainly built. That's some guest houses built using only earth from the surrounding region. Uh, dirt temple is an ongoing project, which isn't actually fully built yet, but that is entirely built using earth from one site in the west of Brisbane. And then, yeah, we've got another earth building, which is about almost finished construction. That's in, but that's in Sri Lanka again, overseas. And that was built with us and, you know, 10 students from uh, Griffith University in Queensland. So, you know, initially five mile radius was like, let's get out rurally and start building. The, re- the reality is actually most of our projects at the moment are quite urban and, you know, you've got to use the right material in the right place. And I don't think that we've yet had a an Australian brief where Earth's been the answer. So uh, one of these other areas that you were talking about that we should really be looking at to be more responsible is uh, the use of waste in, in our buildings. One of the materials that uh, you've mentioned that you use is terrazzo. Now, what is the what is that and how how can people start to specify these things because i feel like any kind of waste material in projects people you know sort of cock their head a little bit at that sort of thing because they're thinking oh do i really want to use waste in my brand new building yeah i don't know it is funny isn't it i mean the idea of of a of a building built entirely out of bits and pieces of waste is is kind of stuck in the owner builder kind of category so it's sort of yeah not necessarily going to be something that mainstream audiences take up um, our waste terrazzo is fabricated using excess concrete so when concreters have leftover concrete they give that to us and then into that we crush other forms of building debris that don't have a second life when you say that they give it to you do you have a concrete depot or how do you <laughs> how do you receive this um, this <laughs> concrete spoil this concrete spoil is actually very generously bought to us by a couple of um, concrete pumpies, and so they're constantly having to empty their lines onto site, and they support what we do, and they bring us the concrete. So initially, we were working on call, so we'd get a call from a building site. Yeah, we've got a cube left over. Come get it. Obviously, as you can imagine, that's pretty time critical because the concrete's trying to set and heavy. Yeah. Oh, everything that we do with concrete is heavy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> look, it's we're, we're kind of a trial by fire kind of firm. So it's like we started out doing this for an exhibition and we were just making nine seats and now we seem to making a lot of it. So if people want to specify it, waste out, so it's, available. it's just a, we sell it as kitchen slabs, bathroom slabs and standalone pieces of furniture. And it's all made in Brisbane and it's 100% waste. 
Wow. And and how does it compare to a regular, uh, you know, kitchen benchtop or, or other applications where you might see uh, a similar kind of uh, hard material like that? Um, well, compared to another terrazzo, which is terrazzo is very in at the moment, uh, every other terrazzo that we've ever seen is made using virgin cement. And then to that, people might mix forms of waste like crushed brick or, um, you know, crushed tiles or they'll just use, you know, virgin rock um, to give that sort of, you know, terrazzo speckled appearance. But we are using, yeah, this waste concrete. So it's different because because you can be guaranteed that it's entirely waste material. Apart from that, it performs exactly like any concrete bench top. We polish it so it's very um, well uh, honed back and, you know, we can make it food safe if you need it to be. Yeah, so in that sense, it just performs like any other concrete. It's not it's not different, but it's just the difference is it's made out of waste. Wonderful. And, I mean, is there also an area for, you know, outdoor furniture and outdoor materials with with, with your waste terrazzo? Oh, yeah, we're doing terrazzo. heaps of garden tables at the moment. The garden tables are coming out and, uh, yeah, we're doing, yeah, like garden seating and, done umbrella stands for cafes and yeah we kind of don't seem to be very good at repeating a shape because we keep getting custom orders so we're kind of just making all sorts of things at the moment we're doing some public footpathing like we just did an installation for the brisbane city council in a intersection in brisbane so yeah very good outdoors and indoors so with all of this uh you know waste concrete material that uh that you're using um, what does this mean in terms of carbon capture um do you know you know how, how far how far that goes uh as far as using a waste material the sort of general carbon it's carbon neutral so it's not negative in terms of its carbon footprint it's already been made but we don't inherit the carbon and that's kind of essentially born into the building project rather in, rather than to us but we're not so the, the product itself is kind of carbon neutral. Obviously, concrete has a lot of embodied, you know, energy in it. So the alternative to a concreter giving it to us is mm-hmm. that they crush it up and turn it into road base. And that essentially is a is a very poor use of a very high uh, carbon material because there's a lot of ways to make road base that involve recycling. Like, for instance, you can recycle an older concrete building if you demolish a concrete building you can recycle that into road base there's no need to use a virgin material to make it so actually using new concrete is better for new materials as opposed to an old old concrete is better for things that aren't necessarily going to be seen and appreciated well and once concrete goes hard there's nothing you can do except crush it up and you can't wet it down again and reuse it it only goes off once so when it goes off, it's important that it goes off and into something which is of value and will continue to be reused, obviously. And then eventually, you know, something might get demolished and then it can get crushed up. But by that point, it's already had a lifespan. Right. Okay. Well, I mean, when it comes to specifying specifically, um, I think when we're reading about buildings that are more green than other buildings, we see a lot about insulation or the uh, heating and cooling system, and we don't hear too much about specifying. Um, And maybe that's because of the results that specifying might bring. Um, Do you think that there's – no, I'll rephrase that. What do you think the benefits are when you specify 
things responsibly, like paints or finishes or or even tarot, the terrazzo that you're making? What do you think the benefits are for the people who are going to end up living in or using these materials? Yeah, it's interesting. The embodied energy, it's definitely less of a discussion from heating and cooling loads and um, energy efficiency. The reality is that both are equally important. In the southern parts of Australia, where it's cooler, where it's a lot cooler in winter, obviously heating's a big thing. And so you've got significant heating loads. And that tends to mean that over the lifespan of a building, the energy in, in heating that building is actually probably going to outweigh the cost of the materials of the embodied energy within the materials itself. For instance, in sort of the average Australian project home, the embodied energy in one of those, it takes something like leaving your heating on for 40 years before you've actually offset the cost of the actual materials within it. And then those project homes often only have a lifespan of in 30 of 30 years. They're intended to fail. And so there is re- actually the materials are something we need to really start talking about and, and we're not. Mm. And what, what do you think needs to be done in, in that space? I mean, we've got so many spec homes being built in Australia. What's Why do you think they're still just being built at that rate? Is it pure economics? I th- well, we obviously have a bit of a housing crisis. Um, I'm not sure that Project Homes and Urban Sprawl is the solution, but let's just say, for instance, that it's what we as a as a society want and so homes are going to continue to be built en masse and that's fine. If we start to examine the actual materials in those buildings, we need to stop you know, using tacky sheeting materials and framing which is stuck together in 35 seconds with a nail gun and then kind of 55 paints and then fake little um, corner scenes and all of these things like the material section in these buildings is actually really complicated. You've got trades on top of trades on top of trades. It's impossible to demolish those buildings without just knocking everything and chucking it into the skip because none of the materials themselves are actually put up with really a concern for craft. You know, if you've ever seen the frame go up on, on some of these things, it's it's shot up in a day and there's there's no way for it to to come apart. So, you know, if you're going to design a building and you know as a developer that it's only going to last for 30 years, like at least make it out of something that you can pull apart, salvage bits of and then reuse. So it's like what's the life cycle of these projects how could we build using a simpler, you know, sectional wall section or a simpler roofing detail that means that we can recover some of this stuff and then, you know, have a bit of responsibility for its end of life? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, when, when it comes to uh, different firms' names, I've always wondered where they came from. Can you, I mean, we've been talking about the actual um, embodied energy of materials uh, when you're specifying. Um, is that mainly where five mile radius came from or is it something else entirely uh the name is um it's a saying from gandhi from mahatma gandhi from india and so that's actually got us into trouble a little bit because he was talking about building with um buildings in a in a rural indian context where you've got a whole bunch of villages five miles apart and so the point was right. use stuff from your surrounding village and look after your local village um in australia obviously five miles is more like 500 kilometers in some instances so we're not specifically interested in using things that are only from within a five mile radius of the site it was just that that for me was a hugely pivotal moment when i read about it sounds a bit cliche but when i was learning about some of these traditional uh, virtues and so that was kind of when I went well right let's call 
the practice that and then it's a bit of a call to arms and a reminder about what it's about. It, it seems like you've done just so much in terms of research and putting into action what you're what you're talking about. Have you, has there been one standout um, result from this, or one standout project where you could stand back and say, "All right, all of the legwork that we put in now has paid off." Uh, yeah, I think that anything where we stand back as a team and look at it and feel really excited is the best. Um, Five miles always been about a community and group sharing feels the best. But I think, you know, finishing our first earth building in India, that was fantastic. Uh, Waste Terrazzo has been really exciting because financially it's been one of the first things that's really allowed us to have a very kind of stable income. And that's allowing us to do research in ways that we haven't done before. And that's amazing. So that's been really exciting. Um, Everything is kind of it's, I would say that there's not a standalone moment. It's more a journey and each little moment rolls into the next. I'm a firm believer as well that you should never really congratulate yourself too too much. Just sort of say, well, that was nice and get on with it. I think our best buildings and the, the real sort of, you know, pinch me moments are probably, I'd say, 30 years away. Um, yeah, and, right. and, you know, we'll just keep going until then. <laughs> <laughs> 30 years away, so what, you want to actually see your projects sort of prove themselves, you know, in their longevity as well, not just uh, not just through the photos. <laughs> oh, God, I hope that they prove themselves in the longevity. But, no, there's a few um, – <laughs> There's a few uh, particularly sort of rural ideas that we have and their their visions for the for the practice that have been there from day one and we've sort of illustrated them and we said like this is the dream. In fact, I think we've got a document called The Dream and it's just about achieving these things. But architecture's always been a bit of an old man's game so we know that it takes a long time to become an elder and eventually hopefully we kind of get there. All right. Well, thank you so much, Claire, for being part of the Hearing Architecture podcast. It's been so wonderful hearing about all the initiatives that Five Mile Radius has in their uh, portfolio at the moment. So thank you so much, and we can't wait to see more of your projects as they as they are finished. So thank you so much. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much. And, yeah, thanks for having us. And if anyone's interested, we do do a lot of educational stuff, obviously less at the moment because of COVID, but keep an eye on our website and our Instagram because, you know, we're hoping to do more and more of that kind of stuff and try and find lots of ways to involve other architects in the studio. All right. Thank you so much, Claire. Cool. Thank you. Specifying building products that comply with all of the national and local building regulations is one of the main liabilities architects deal with. Working on large projects like apartment buildings multiplies the inherent risks of specifying the wrong product. David Schultes is an Associate Director specialising in delivery at one of Australia's most prolific multi-residential architecture firms, Ellenberg Fraser. David and I talk about how Ellenberg Fraser aim to achieve high results even though they're working within the value management culture of high-density development. All right, David, thank you so much for joining us on the Hearing Architecture podcast. How are you going? I'm going well. The uh, lockdown has been uh, difficult for everyone in the industry, and uh, we've been since mid-March working remotely. And um, the further stage four restrictions related to the restriction of work permits and access to site uh, and number of employees on site and number of um, construction staff on site obviously has had an impact on um, programming to a number of our projects, which I'm sure any architect and obviously building industry are experiencing. Yeah, it's got to be very tricky for a large practice like Ellenberg Fraser, but it's good to hear that, yeah, you're taking it in your stride and, and knocking it out of the park. 
Ellenberg Fraser is one of the leaders in multi-residential architecture space in Australia. What are some of the fa- your favourite examples of the high-level outcomes that Ellenberg Fraser has achieved over the years in the buildings that you've worked on? I've been fortunate to be with EF for about six and a half years. Callum's been in practice for just over 22 years. So uh, I guess the, probably the best way to talk about this would probably be to look at um, some of our past, our current, and our future work. And I think that all of our work really addresses the community programming and the social values. I mean, I'm in some way, our 50 Albert Street project just off of San Kilda Road, which was completed in 2013, which has about 283 apartments for approximately 600 residents. Um, the project is intensely admired by the residents due to the sense of community that we have created in the project through the integration of communal spaces. I think the at least I've seen in the in the multi-residential space since probably about 2010 that all uh, multi-residential projects of a larger scale began incorporating swimming pools and, and spas and saunas and communal dining areas and libraries and smoking lounges and whiskey bars and things like that in order to in order to provide communal spaces where they can leave their apartment and find communal spaces within the building within which they're living. And um, I think that all of our projects have been successful in uh, creating um, a sense of a sense of community. Yeah. And do you, do you think the incorporating really positive communal spaces has helped Ellenberg Fraser, you know, produce really responsible buildings in terms of making sure that people aren't isolated and buildings do foster a sense of community? I think that's obviously one of the main goals within some of our large-scale projects, that the communal spaces also, particularly in 50 Albert, the body corporate are rent out the uh, rooftop. There's a large communal space, and they, they rent out this space to the MSO to use as a recital practice area. And then once a month, the MSO perform a recital for the residents of the apartment building. Gosh, that's pretty special if uh, once a month you get to see one of the best orchestras in, in Australia performing at your, at your home. <laughs> yes. There are also other, obviously, um, these communal spaces, the communal dining areas can be rented out by individuals or tenants within the building and want to, want to entertain on a larger scale. They have the opportunity to um, rent out the use of these communal spaces and dining areas, which have reheat kitchens where they can order in food and they can reheat food and they can entertain a larger number of anywhere from, you know, 20 to 50 people within the building. It's probably not only an additional point of attraction, but as I've seen in the last 10 years, in order to attract people to projects, because there is so much multi-residential going on, there's a competition between developers and sales agents to attract tenants or owner occupiers to various projects that every project continues to add additional communal spaces you know you, some of the later work now we're seeing you know in uh, we've got a project that's starting construction aspire on 299 king street i think it uh, it has a whiskey bar and has a champagne bar and I will touch briefly also on a, a present project, um, Aurora 250 Latrobe, which we finished at the end of 2019, which is the tallest building in the Melbourne CBD at 90 stories. 
which has 952 apartments and 252 service departments. And in uh, creating or designing those types of vertical um, communities, you need to have throughout the building, you have to have a variety of communal spaces where the residents, as I said, can, can live and socialize outside of their apartments. Yeah, it seems like elements like that get cut out of projects, often on large apartment projects, for cost-saving reasons. How does Ellenberg Fraser achieve these great results when some projects might cut them out because they might seem like a value drain? Well, they're they're incorporated in very early on in the design development and um, uh, marketing stages of a project and become part of the initial brief and discussions with the clients before the projects get um, tendered. So a project will go out for marketing at about 50% design development when the project is, let's say, 50% through its design life. The building has to go out to market. It may They may initially go offshore for pre-marketing. And then once they've completed their offshore marketing process, then it comes onshore. Depending on the amount of financing that a developer has sought from a bank, the projects need to achieve about 80% sales before they sort of push the button on the project going out to tender for a managing contractor and builder. So the spaces themselves, once a builder is appointed and their tender price comes back in. I mean, if if the builder's tender price is basically comes in too high for the clients, then the spaces will not be deleted from the project, but obviously will go through um, a value management process on the internal finishes to try to obviously achieve the same uh, look and feel and design intent within the project, but at a slightly lower price point. But um, those spaces would not get deleted because the project's been sold on, has been marketed, having the swimming pools and the steam rooms and the communal dining areas and the karaoke rooms and the cigar rooms and the whiskey bars and all of these things in there. And those are the reasons that purchasers may have bought into a particular project over another project because of the increased communal spaces, the um, the wellness opportunities within the within the project, and, and any other practice doing large-scale multi-residential would be having these same facilities, um, including gyms. So you don't need to have an external gym membership now. You can, you can attend the gym um, in your building. You can swim in your 20 to 25-meter pool. You've got sauna and steam rooms. You've got shower facilities. You know, everything is provided within within that environment. I guess one of the anecdotes that I'd like to also raise is that obviously a lot of purchasers are buying them off the plan during the marketing stage. But then when the projects arrived at practical completion, they come to site, they make a final inspection of the apartment, they do their own final defects inspection and they haven't seen the project in its built form. They've seen the marketing material. They've seen the models. They've seen the, you know, they've seen the plans at a larger scale. They've seen, they've made a selection of the materials and finishes. As everyone does, we'll offer um, a number of different color schemes, including an upgrade scheme. There'll be upgraded finishes and materials that the, um, that the purchaser can elect to um, proceed with. And when they come to actually see the project and walk through the project and see how amazing the communal facilities are, instead of renting the apartment out, 
to someone else as a way of receiving revenue. They become so enamored with the building that they keep the apartment for themselves. They keep it as a pied de terre in the city. If they retain their residential dwelling outside the city and they come into the city periodically to go to the symphony or, or something like that and they want to stay over, they stay at their apartment in the city. So, um, And that's, that's something that happened um, on 50 Albert where um, initially at the beginning of the project, there were about 20% of the 600 residents were owner-occupiers, the people that had actually purchased the apartments were actually living in the apartments and the other 80% of the apartments were being rented out. And over time, that percentage of actual owner-occupiers increased to in excess of 64 to 65% because they became so enamored with the project. And you've asked about a, a sense of responsibility. I think it's it's more related to a sense of social responsibility and about the architecture and the elements within the architecture assist in um, in creating that that sense of uh, that sense of community. And you mentioned that there's an upgrade kit. Is that based on a cosmetic upgrade, or is there a sort of additional performance upgrades for in- insulation and things like that? Um, the upgraded schemes are uh, materials and the finishes uh, upgrade. The countertops may you know move possibly from reconstituted stone to um, Carrara marble. They'll have options for an upgrade on the uh, wall tiling in the bathrooms. There might be an upgrade on the timber flooring or an upgrade um, on the on the carpeting. The in, uh, incorporation of um, uh, integrated fridges as opposed to standalone fridges. The building envelope and the insulation and the thermal insulation and the acoustic requirements and the thermal requirements of the, for the facades are obviously um, dictated by the BCA and the National Construction Code under BCA Section J. And the minimal acoustic requirements are dictated um, under the BCA as well. So the base building performance is not upgraded. It's a, I mean, the upgrades could include automated blinds instead of manual blinds. There's a whole series of extra options or um, bells and whistles that can be made available if the owner is, is interested in pursuing the updated scheme. In the industry, it seems like there are a lot of people who are worried about novation contracts with regards to specifying because builders can swap out materials when the client might be looking for cost savings across the project. Uh, what does Ellenberg Fraser do to minimize any inherent risks that might be present in novation contracts with regards to, to specifying materials? Um, at the time of the appointment of the managing contractors slash builders um, during this, they'll always, I believe, there's obviously on the large-scale projects, we will go through, it could be anywhere from a six to eight month value management process where we will review the substitutions and changes to the materials and the products should be equivalent to or better than what we've specified and we which sometimes it's not always the case and we under innovated contract we're essentially working for the builder as um, a design consultant we will review the substitutions in relationship to what we've specified in terms of warranty, uh, durability, 
slip resistance, and then also obviously insists that if it's required for the issuing of a, of a staged building permit by the building surveyor, that obviously all of the fire certificates confirming non-combustibility of the materials is being met and or we need to ask the other consultants who are also novated to the managing contractor slash builder to get involved and or obviously recommend that they do. The clients also remain involved. They appoint um, a development manager or project manager who is involved in the project as well, who attends the fortnightly design meetings during certainly during value management and uh, needs to be involved in understanding any of the material changes that are being made or if it is a, a facade system change to save money or if it's um, a deletion of a certain aspect of the project that is too costly if some element can be scaled back in order to save money. So the other, I guess, the other important thing that I, I want to raise, and I've, I've also raised it in, in some of the large practice meetings, is that the architect can't sit in isolation when they're reviewing these substitutions. That if it's related to a um, communal area or a means of egress, there is a greater onus on compliance with the BCA NCC in terms of providing a safe, a safe means of egress, non-combustible and or flame retardant materials finishes and materials that have been confirmed through fire testing to carry a a group one, two, or three um, certificate. And we need to call in other um, consultants. The other consultants that also need to be drawn in are the ESD consultants. Most uh, councils require that a sustainability management plan is prepared by an ESD consultant and is submitted as part of the town planning approval, and those sustainability management plans will be endorsed by council. Uh, those sustainability management plans include the requirements for low VOC paints, low emissivity timbers and veneers. A lot of our projects are required to strive to achieve five or six star green star requirements, and we can use those requirements that have already been prescribed and approved by council and are required to be adhered to as a way of rejecting substitutions which don't meet, if you'd like, the mandatory requirements for the project. And so um, it's the obligation of the architect who has a, a broad overall understanding of the project, who has been through the town planning, the design development stages, uh, working for the client, who has possibly a broader and more in-depth understanding of the documentation that actually went out to tender. And we can use the sustainability management plan. We can use marketing renders. We can use the material and finishes boards that the sales agents have used to sell the project to state that substitutions obviously need to visually look like the original product specified. But if there is a uh, an ESD requirement, if there is a BCANCC fire requirement, uh, any substitutions for products within, particularly within a communal space, also within the um, individual apartments as well, if there is any requirement for those to be reviewed by the relevant building surveyor, then we need, need to also defer and advise the builder that they need to seek advice from the relevant building surveyor and or the fire engineer or any other consultant who's working on the team. And the other thing is obviously that the builder, once he receives our approval and or response or 
an approved subject to comments response, he must take those changes to the client's development manager and or project manager and seek their approval as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. So does a large practice like Ellenberg Fraser have something like a responsible design policy or responsible design objective in place? Well, we have on all of our large-scale projects, um, we're required to, under the contract, to produce a quality a quality management plan for that project. We sit down with the with the managing contractor at some stage, and they interrogate our quality management plan and the processes uh, and procedures which we have in place within the office in the review or the preparation of documentation for construction to ensure that compliance at our end is being carried out in accordance with the NCC BCA requirements. Ultimately, under a design and construct contract where the remainder of the of design development, the construction documentation and the construction services phase is being carried out under a novated contract under the builder, it's it's ultimately their responsibility, but they are relying on the consultants to to all have a proper quality assurance uh, management process within the office. So we have um, a quality assurance uh, checklist aired in the office for each phase of, of a project where a project architect or an interior designer or a graduate of architecture working in consultation with a, a project architect can go through these checklists and make sure that they've hit all of the key uh, important sign-off points in terms of trade specifications, schedules, documentation, in terms of compliance for an IFC issue. The other thing that we maintain in the office is a, um, an annual management system certificate to ASNZ 4801 for the provision of um, architectural services, which means that an external certifier has come into our office and confirmed that we have processes and procedures within the office that conform to the Australian standards for safety management systems. This not only relates to occupational health and safety issues, but it relates to the processes and procedures that we have um, in the office. So, yeah. Right. Okay. And it, I mean, it seems like there's a lot of articles and, and newspapers and things about apartments in, in Australia at the moment having some difficulties. What do you think is the biggest issue facing specification compliance for architects today? And, and how does Ellenberg Fraser? deal with this type of issue? I think the issues probably facing the industry, the building industry, obviously in the last 10 years is probably because the economy has been booming and there's been a huge boom in the multi-residential or service department realm, just the speed at, at, at which these projects need to be completed has resulted in the cutting of corners in terms of the necessary regulatory sign-offs or the minimum number of attendances to site by a relevant building surveyor during the construction of the project. And I think that um, Lacrosse and Grenfell and NEO 200, one of the most recent ACP fires in Melbourne, has obviously highlighted the need for a greater amount of more time and increased risk management to be taken. Um, and then we've seen the Opal, uh, in terms of structure, we've seen the Opal and the Mascot Tower um, issues um, structurally within um, in Sydney. Obviously, things are getting built too quickly 
the consultants that need to be on site or attend site more regularly. There, there needs to be an increased involvement. I know that the under renovated contract, the builders are taking and their subcontractors carry a majority of the responsibility in terms of the built product. But I mean, if there's something inherent in one of the subconsultants' designs, if there's something wrong with the structural design and they built an incorrect structural design, then then obviously that shouldn't be happening. So it's it's a matter of uh, taking the time to design things, develop the design properly, making sure that everyone that needs to have an input into those design elements has given it a tick. If those design elements are changing from the original pre-novation design development phase to a post-design development phase under a novated contract, then an even greater onus needs to be taken in terms of uh, looking at compliance. Um, I think the other issue over the last 10 years in the building industry has been the, the need to get the projects into the marketplace as quickly as possible in terms of projects go out to market at 50 to 75% design development. They get tendered at that stage. Architects not being able to complete a 100% design development package where we have had time to look at all of the different design aspects of the project mm. in its totality. I mean, it seems like speed is just is just such a huge issue at the moment that architects need to deal with. Thank you so much, David, for being part of the Hearing Architecture podcast. It's been really fantastic speaking with you. So thank you so much for your involvement, and we look forward to speaking with you again in the future. Great, Daniel. Thank you. Thank you so much for uh, asking me and to be involved in the Hearing Architecture podcasts. This has been episode 11 of season 2 of Hearing Architecture. Thank you so much for listening. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. Thank you to our guests in this episode, Andrew Jeeves, Claire Kennedy and David Schultes for their contribution to the architecture profession and the community. The interviews in this season were coordinated around Australia by Imagine Committee members. Jamila Jahangiri, Kirsty Vols, Hugh Michaelmore, Chris Morley, Victoria Clarkson, Lily Fong, Tanya Banagala, Jess Beaver, Dylan Gorton, Vaughan Cockburn, Kalina Sparks, Tom McKenzie and James Goffwin. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Stacey Rodder, Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy written and directed by Daniel Moore. To learn more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.